Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord, Editor-in-Chief of No Film School. I am Emily Buder, Managing Editor of No Film School. Uh, hey, I'm Charles Hayne. I'm a tech writer at No Film School. On this week's show, filmmakers get involved in the craziest U.S. election ever, while others get arrested for filming protests. Razor buys George Lucas's THX, and lots of independent movies are being released this week. And, as always, we'll include news you can use about gear, upcoming deadlines, and Ask No Film School. Welcome to this week's show. As always, we're coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School, and we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy working on film projects. Some of you might have been glad to miss recent news if you live in the U.S. because it's been very, very hard to avoid the news about what has become one of the most contentious election cycles in my lifetime. Um, No matter where you live, you're probably aware that the U.S. presidential election is less than three weeks away. So, of course, we have to give our indie film spin. Earlier this week, Emily put up a post about Michael Moore's surprise documentary, Michael Moore in Trumpland, which uh, premiered in a free screening at New York City's IFC Center on Tuesday night. I actually tried to go, but the line was hundreds of people long. In a way, I was surprised that there was still such an appetite for anything about this election, because, again, it's just been so pervasive here. Like, what else could there possibly be? What could you say? And how could you want to watch anything more because it's it's in our eyes and ears i think even for people trying to avoid it it's everywhere but i loved that michael moore kind of pulled a stunt that seemed in keeping with the theatrics of this entire cycle he pulled a beyonce they're very similar michael moore and beyonce i always say that Interestingly, it seems like the film even kind of came as a surprise to Moore himself. It was just filmed at an event in Ohio earlier this month where he gave a live talk. So they turned this thing around in like two weeks. Um, I read a report that the independent, the, the IFC Center here in New York, the folks were like really scrambling because they had only found out about the film's existence earlier this week. And then they kind of put, you know, put together this crazy screening. Um, And evidently, Ohio Republicans actually tried to shut down the movie entirely. Wow. That's actually really interesting because although I didn't get in, some other media outlets did and, and they gave their take. So we have some of that to read about. And everyone from Fox News to The New York Times agreed that the film is actually less about bashing Trump and more about extolling the virtues of Hillary Clinton. So I don't know why the Ohio Republican Party would have a problem with it. Although, I mean, surely they don't want people voting for Clinton. But I I thought that the production was especially meaningful since Michael Moore had previously been a big supporter of Hillary's primary opponent, Bernie Sanders. I'm also really interested to see it because Michael Moore spent like 30 years, uh, ever since Roger and me, like really exploring the Midwestern white working class like dilemma. And that is the constituency that is the primary base of Trump's support. And so I'm very curious to see the experience of like someone from Michigan, from a factory town who clearly cares about that world and that history, but disagrees sort of vehemently with Trump's solution to the problems. Um, I'm very curious to see his take. I think that's why he called the film Michael Moore in Trumpland, because Ohio is one of those Rust Belt states that is typically, you know, considered would be considered Trump country. Anyway, so lots of other filmmakers have been involved in election-related initiatives. Another one um, that came out last week was Oscar-nominated filmmaker Liz Garbus uh, released a short called It's Not Okay, featuring 
lots of Hollywood heavyweights like Meryl Streep, Whoopi Goldberg, Lena Dunham. It's a response uh, by women to the leaked tapes of Trump bragging about sexual assault. And it features testimonies from women of various ages and races about their own experiences with sexual mistreatment. So here's a small clip from that film. When I was 15. When I was 12. I moved on her like a bitch. When I was 13 years old. When I was 23. Grab him by the When I was 15. When I was 29. When you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. When I was 19. When I was 14 years old. This was locker room talk. The fact is that men at times talk like that. It's crude guy talk. This one guy, you know, said, you know, I'm going to fuck you up, you little slut. And he said to me, what's that? I can't hear you over your menstruation. Not all of the films are so heavy. Uh, some of them are actually really fun. We put one up on the site um, that was a funnier die piece where uh, Danny Elfman, the composer who's well-known for making the kind of creepy and macabre and, in my view, brilliant uh, soundtracks to most of the Tim Burton films, actually created a score of a supercut of the last presidential debate between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Um, a lot of the press around the debate was uh, focused on the fact that Trump seemed to kind of stalk Clinton around the stage whenever she was speaking. And so this uh, funnier die clip with Elfman's soundtrack is like a horror soundtrack <laughs> of what was kind of a horror debate. So very, it's very funny and worth checking out on the site. Another one called Pantsuit Power. You can almost envision what it is just by hearing the name. It's uh, directed by Celia Rolson Hall and Mia Ladofsky and produced by Jillian Schlesinger and Liz, Liz Sargent. It was a pro-Hillary flash mob of men and women dancing in pantsuits in New York City's Union Square. And unlike most of the rhetoric around this election, it was actually kind of positive and joyful. Uh, it's fun to watch. Now, I did try to find equivalents in the Trump supporting camp, and a couple of our readers uh, suggested on Facebook and, and on the post um, about Michael Moore's film that we check out Hillary's America. So I looked into the film, and it turns out it's the third doc by conservative commentator and author Dinesh D'Souza. And his first doc, Obama's America, was actually, I can't believe this, but it was the fourth highest grossing documentary of all time. Now, that being said, it was universally panned. Both of the films, if you hadn't guessed, are highly critical of their subjects. So it's not that Hillary's America and Obama, Obama's America are about how great those Americas are. It's about um, how terrible uh, D'Souza perceives their Americas to be. Now, I don't personally want to really put these um, D'Souza films in the same category as the others that I mentioned, and not because they support Trump and not Hillary, but because um, the Sousa just doesn't have the same kind of proven track record in the indie film world as the other filmmakers I mentioned do. And the arguments laid out in his films have been widely discredited. And he himself has been indicted on felony charges for campaign finance fraud. Yikes. Yeah. So I just, it's for me, it's hard to think of his films as credible work in the same way that I um, think of the others. But yeah, you know, this obviously has been a very U.S.-focused segment as we, we are all here in the U.S. and this election is going to affect us, certainly, and you likely, no matter where you live. But I would be curious to hear from listeners if you've participated in or heard of similar projects in your own countries. And in the meantime, if you are in the U.S., please don't forget to get out and vote on November 8th. Not the 28th. It's fun. You get a sticker. You do. We like stickers. 
In more political news, Emmy-winning filmmaker Daya Schlossberg was arrested in North Dakota just for doing her job. Schlossberg was filming an oil pipeline protest last week when she was arrested on three felony charges, which could result in 45 years in prison. And just as scary from a filmmaking perspective, her equipment and footage from the event was confiscated. So, Emily, you I know you posted on Facebook about this story. What What's it actually about? What's going on with the pipeline? So the Dakota Access Pipeline controversy all started when the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe said, basically, not in my backyard, to a $3.8 billion project to construct a crude oil pipeline across its ancestral lands. The proposed pipeline will cross through the Missouri and through a lake that's just about a half a mile north of the Sioux Reservation, and its residents fear contamination and an oil spill. In fact, at first the pipeline was slated to cross the river at a town called Bismarck in North Dakota, but it was moved close to the Sioux Reservation for fear of contaminating the entire state's drinking water. So clearly the concerns are widespread. It's important to note that the Sioux have a legal right to protect their native ground, But as we all know, the U.S. has a very long history of violating Native American treaties. Activists have come out in spades to support the Sioux, who have filed a lawsuit against the construction of the pipeline. Even celebrities like Shailene Woodley, who actually got arrested too, Susan Sarandon and Rosario Dawson have traveled to North Dakota to publicly oppose the pipeline. These arrests are so frightening for anyone who believes in a free press because it seems to be part of the systematic silencing of anyone attempting to cover the story. The police even admitted that the reason they arrested Shailene Woodley is because she was live streaming and high profile her experience and high profile and millions of people saw it. Similarly, another journalist, Amy Goodman, had been arrested um, when she was covering a different protest against the Dakota Access Pipeline. She was arrested under riot charges. They were lobbied after she reported on a clash between protesters and security officers who used dogs and pepper spray against the crowd. And her video of that got over 14 million views on Facebook. So she actually chose to return to North Dakota to face the charges. And they were dropped by the judge in what I would call a victory for freedom of the press. Although that wasn't always certain. Unfortunately, um, at the time of reporting this show, the charges against the filmmaker Schlossberg still stand. Now, filmmaker Josh Fox, who made Gasland, has started a petition in support of Schlossberg because she is producing his latest film called How to Let Go of the World and Love All Things Climate Can't Change. So if you're interested in learning more or signing the petition, you can go to howtoletgomovie.com. We want to pause to remember Polish filmmaker Andrzej Wajda, who passed away last week at age 90. We neglected to mention this on last week's show, but there is a beautiful obituary posted on No Film School, written by Scout Tafoya, and Emily edited that post. So, Emily, can you tell us a bit about Wajda's life? Okay, so Wajda actually won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, an Academy Lifetime Achievement Award, a BAFTA, and a Golden Globe, among many other accolades in his long career. And he built the foundation of political cinema as we know it. His expressionistic films fought oppression by giving the working class a humanistic voice. Vida influenced the aesthetic DNA of filmmakers like Roman Polanski, Martin Scorsese, and Francis Ford Coppola. If you're unfamiliar with him, you should start with Ashes and Diamonds, one of his early films. And be sure to look out for After Image, Vida's final film and Poland's nominee for Best Foreign Language Film in 2017, which has yet to be released. 
So this is Charles. We've got a couple interesting pieces of gear news out there this week. Uh, the first is that LG's new E6 line just qualified as studio reference quality in DisplayMate testing. So for a long time, if you wanted like a really high quality color accurate monitor, you had to go for the Panasonic Pro Plasma. But they stopped making those five years ago, and we've all been sort of casting around trying to find what the replacement is, and it looks like it's finally here. So studio reference quality is a term of art that means the colors are accurate enough that human vision won't be able to tell it's not perfect. So if something is supposed to look like skin tone, it'll look like skin tone. If it's supposed to look like a Coke bottle, it'll look like a Coke bottle. We've all had those experiences where we've shot something and you know what it looked like on set and you're looking at it on the monitor and post and it just like it looks too orange or it looks too saturated. Studio reference quality means it should look as accurate as possible. And now in a monitor for $5,000, that's available. $5,000 isn't going to change your home studio setup, but if you have a editing suite or color suite at home or, I mean, even a lot of smaller post houses, I think this is going to be huge. It also, it's full 4K and has Dolby Vision HDR and 3D. The next piece of news is Razer, the manufacturer of high-end gaming computers, has bought THX. THX was spun off from Lucasfilm way back in 2002, but their history runs back to 1983 and George Lucas's frustrations with inconsistent volume levels in theaters. He would go see Star Wars, and in some theaters it'd be too loud and some too quiet. There wasn't any standardization, and basically the projectionist was setting volume, which is really frustrating because the director would like to set volume. Uh, so he hired this guy, Tom Linson Holman, and they created THX, which set standards. Uh, the reason this is cool is we all have this frustration with laptops and computers today. We watch something on an iMac, and it looks different on our MacBook Pro, and then it looks different on a PC. And I don't think THX is going to be able to solve this for everything, but THX being owned by a computer company means we're going to see some developments there that I think will be beneficial. Uh, THX has also publicly announced they're interested in certifying VR and AR and home theater speakers, and I think we're going to see some interesting developments. THX started as an audio company, but in the 90s, they expanded into picture calibration as well. So they do home theater calibration. They also do theatrical calibration for picture quality. And THX's whole business is about setting consistency between theaters. You go from one THX theater to another, it should sound and look identical. The same brightness, the same color cast, and... They're not going to be able to bring that to the world of your iPhone's going to look identical to your laptop, but they should be able, working with Razer, to bring a set of standards around so that all the Razer laptops look consistent to each other. And in my dream scenario, bringing Razer laptop and monitor, uh, desktop monitors up to a level where it'll look consistent with like your external broadcast monitor, and that'll be interesting enough. The next bit of gear news is that there's an Intel-branded drone out in the field now. Uh, while this drone is more targeted at industrial applications and is a little outside our price point at the moment, it's interesting to filmmakers because Intel moving into this space is a good sign for DIY. At the same time they're releasing this, they're also releasing a bunch of DIY components for building your own drone. So they're releasing a control board and the camera system from the drone. So right now, most drone activity is all bundled up in boxes. DJI is designing the complete package and GoPro's designing the complete package. And it's really interesting that Intel is building a lot of the component parts out there. And I think we're gonna see a lot of applications for this 
in filmmaking to have custom built hardware that you can adapt to a variety of functions. Ooh, tinkertastic. Some grant deadlines coming up. We've got the European Short Pitch 2017, which has a deadline of October 21st. It's for international short film screenwriters between 18 and 35 years old. It offers a pitch session with a script writing residency workshop and a co-production forum. Adding to their prestigious producing and screenwriting labs, Sundance started the New Frontier Story Lab a few years ago for artists who are developing interactive, immersive, or experimental projects from a wide variety of storytelling disciplines, forms, and story designs. And this year's Sundance New Frontier Story Lab has an application of deadline of October 24th. So when I talk about these wide variety of platforms that they're looking for stories on, they're talking about film, gaming, theater, music, visual arts, comics, literature, design, and web. And I think ideally these would there would be crossover between several of these. And overall, the project just has to sort of innovate on story design um, or be exploring new methods of storytelling in some way. Uh, they're looking for work in project progress um, and applicants that have completed some previous work in one or more of the fields related to their project. It's not just for Americans. International projects are considered, but all the project materials must be provided in English. And if you are an emerging screenwriter who has made less than $50,000 in your screenwriting career, you could be eligible for ScreenCraft's Action and Thriller Script Contest with the deadline of October 20th, which is tonight. If you've got an awesome action or thriller script, you could win $1,500 and a phone call with the screenwriter of Die Hard. (laughs) Great. This week's episode of Indie Film Weekly is brought to you by our friends at Vimeo, the world's best filmmakers called Vimeo Home. We all know about Vimeo, but do you know about Vimeo Pro? When you join Vimeo Pro, you can upload up to 20 gigabytes of video each week and showcase your video in the highest quality possible with unlimited bandwidth in Vimeo's ad-free 4K player. Vimeo can provide you with a platform to really jumpstart your career as a filmmaker. And if you have a Vimeo Pro account, all those prospective clients are going to look at it and they're going to be like, this filmmaker is a real pro. Even better than that, you'll join a supportive community of passion filmmakers and video professionals that you can only find on Vimeo. Or no film school, of course. Not to mention, that support network can give you feedback on your latest project, provide you with an easy way to send off work to collaborators, and act as a resume to show off all the work you've previously done. So if you're ready to stop playing around with the YouTubes and get serious, you can give Vimeo Pro a try and save 15% when you go to vimeo.com professionals. Get pro and enter the code NFS at checkout. Limit one discount per person, offer valid for first year of membership, renews at regular price. Vimeo Pro, powerful tools for professional filmmakers. We've got some festival deadlines coming up as well. Uh, also on October 21st, the Berlin International Film Festival. We talked about the Boston Underground Film Festival a couple weeks ago, which was Buff, and now this is Biff. I feel like there's some theme going on. Anyway, this festival takes place in Berlin in February, and it's not connected with the Berlinale, the big famous uh, Berlin Film Festival, but it runs at the same time, and it's not far from that European film market, and sort of still draws on all the film industry power gathered in Berlin for those other events. So I, I imagine it's sort of like the slam dance equivalent to Sundance. Um, They host workshops and networking and social events where filmmakers help each other out with marketing advice, etc. And not to be confused with the Boston Underground Film Festival, which we mentioned last week, we've got the Boston International Film Festival on October 20th. What? Another Biff? 
<laughs> well, apparently so. It's a Biff-themed show. The deadline's October 21st, and it takes place from April 13th to April 17th in Boston. It's 15 years in the running, and it accepts submissions for feature narrative and documentary, as well as short narrative and documentary. And all genres are welcome. And now, dun-da-da, everyone's favorite segment, Ask No Film School. So we got a question, or actually 22 questions, from our community member, Social Protog, who appropriately titled his post, A Huge List of Questions from a Budding Filmmaker. And he basically asked every question that we ever hear on Ask No Film School in one post. Kudos. Yeah. So first, I want to congratulate him on already accomplishing an important part of the process, which is asking good questions. Now, we're going to attempt to answer just a couple of the queries, but this is also a good opportunity to remind people that we require you to use real names on our boards. So, Social Protog, please go ahead and update your account with your real name, unless your real name is Social Protog, in which case, you're going to make a great filmmaker. The first question we're going to answer of Social Protogs is question number two. What ISO range that a filmmaker would use when shooting in low light? For my stills, I usually shoot up to 3200 ISO on an average. But the ISO I seem to use when shooting videos maxes out around 2,000. Why is that? Uh, that's a really great question and one I'm really excited to answer. The main reason you tend to use different ISOs when shooting video and stills is twofold. The first is that you evaluate video images differently than you do stills. Because with video, you're watching a whole series of still images and noise is inconsistent. It's going to be in a different place every shot. So as you watch it and it dances around, you're going to see the noise jump, and that can be very distracting. So the same amount of noise that wouldn't bother you in a still frame because your brain kind of tunes it out and focuses on the subject of the shot, if the eyes are sharp, things like that. It's a distracting, moving part of frame, and humans are very distracted by movement when you see it in video. So you tend to want a little less noise in a video image than you do in a still image. The other reason is that a lot of DSLR cameras, and I think you're shooting a Nikon DSLR, a lot of them, their video is much noisier than their still because the still image is usually shooting the native resolution of the sensor, whereas the video is usually a different format. So they have to use some sort of crop or pixel binning to create that video, and you often see a lot more noise and a much slower sensor when shooting video on a DSLR. And one of the things you might notice if you switch to a native cinema camera is you can go to slightly higher ISOs without a lot of the noise that you see in a DSLR because it'll be shooting the native sensitivity or the native resolution of the sensor and you won't run into as much noise. So he had a bunch of questions in different categories and a whole other category was about kind of producing and how you set up documentary shoots. He says the videos are taken with the intent of recording reality without any quote-unquote creative outlook? And is there a way to make a story out of everyday footage? How do you approach that? So I would actually take a step back and kind of shift your entire thinking on this one because really everything that you do and that we do um, as filmmakers is a creative choice. So even deciding to make the footage or to, to show the footage as untouched and realistic as possible is a creative choice. So even if all you're doing is setting up a camera in the room and walking away, you're still making a decision about where that camera is placed, which will affect the audience perspective. And if you are in the room, which I imagine you are, then your mere presence is affecting what you're calling reality. So all this is to say that I encourage you to embrace the fact that you're making choices 
and the fact that the best performing docs are generally the most cinematic ones. So the ones that are visually appealing, that are, you know, that someone did think about how is this going to look? What am I trying to say with every shot? Um, and make some real creative choices that will allow you to get the best possible visuals while staying true to the story and to your subjects. So everybody can look on the boards for Social Protog's question and lots and lots of answers from our community. I want to thank everybody for stepping up on this one. And um, best of luck to you. Thanks for the question. As I mentioned at the top of the show, this is a big week for indie film releases. We've got a ton of stuff coming out. I'm pretty excited. Just in time for Halloween, for example... Fear, Inc. is hitting a limited theatrical run and a wide streaming release. It's a horror comedy with Lucas Neff and Abigail Breslin that premiered at Tribeca. And we actually have a great post by the directors Luke Barnett and Vincent Masquial called 10 Things We Learned from 10 Years of Hustling for Our Feature Debut. And an interesting thing that they learned through the process of pitching to agencies is that um, the horror genre is not a very attractive genre to A-list talent, apparently. So... In order to package it like in a more palatable way, they pitched as a horror comedy closer to like Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, it's always exciting for us <clears throat> when the filmmakers themselves write for the site and let us know about their process. And the fact that these guys were willing to share their 10-year process while they were working in Hollywood to make this film um, was really special. And I encourage everybody to check it out. In- yeah, they're true bartenders turned filmmakers. Yeah. And that'll be linked to in this week's podcast post. Wizard Mode is also coming to VOD. It's a coming-of-age documentary by Nathan Drio and Jeff Petrie about an autistic pinball champion. Interesting thing about this film is that it's Vimeo's first ever original feature film. So, you know, let's see what happens when Vimeo tries to get in the Netflix and Amazon independent production game. This one premiered at Hot Docs International Film Festival and now will be hitting iTunes and the other streaming sites this weekend. Hey guys, I'm just jumping in here to let you know that Black Mirror is coming to Netflix on October 21st, which is this Friday. After two seasons on Channel 4 in Great Britain, Netflix has picked up Charlie Brooker's bleak sci-fi series, which focuses on some of the darker sides of humans' interactions with technology. Back at TIFF, I had a chance to interview two of the directors who worked on the new Netflix exclusive. Owen Harris directed the Mackenzie Davis episode, San Junipero, and Joe Wright directed the Bryce Dallas Howard episode, Nosedive. I was also lucky enough to get to see the first four episodes of the new season, and fans won't be disappointed. And if you haven't seen the series, you probably won't be disappointed either. I especially liked the Nosedive episode, whose star, Bryce Dallas Howard, also said she liked my shirt. My interview with the two directors will be released on Monday, and they share some great insight on world building and working with a creator's platform like Netflix. So be sure and check it out. And as for theatrical releases, way back in March at South by Southwest this year, I spoke to a man named Musa Saeed, who made a film called A Stray coming out this Friday. It's about a Somali refugee who's kicked out of his house and basically forced to take to the streets. And he has to rely upon the goodwill of his Muslim community, which rejects him and embraces him in equal measure. Saeed, who comes from a documentary background, told me that he went from shooting the film to premiering in South by Southwest in four months time. He said, quote, it was a 15 day shoot and a very run and gun spirit that fit with the movie, which is all about this person in perpetual motion. Also coming to theaters on this Friday is Fire at Sea. It's one of the most magnificent documentaries I've ever seen. It's by Italian filmmaker Gianfranco Rossi, who, by the way, 
is as charming as could possibly be. You can probably hear my filmmaker crush through the microphone. Uh, But the film itself takes place on a little island outside Italy called Lampedusa, which has become a kind of quiet ground zero for the European refugee crisis because of its location between North Africa and Europe. I interviewed Rossi at the New York Film Fest just last week, and I think that any filmmaker can take inspiration from his approach, which uses the language of narrative cinema rather than the language of documentary to gorgeously frame each and every moment of his film, which is kind of what I was getting at um, in my advice in the Ask No Film School segment earlier. That uh, interview will be going up on the site this week. And one of the most talked about films from the entire festival circuit this year is also hitting theaters. Barry Jenkins' Moonlight comes to theaters this Friday. It's been 10 years since Barry Jenkins made a movie. His first Medicine for Melancholy gained international acclaim on the festival circuit, and the director went to work for the Telluride Film Festival for many years. And it wasn't until his friend from film school, who was now a producer, basically said to him, quote, when are you going to make another fucking film, that Jenkins started looking for material for his next one. He found a kindred spirit in Terrell McCraney, a playwright from whom he adapted the script for Moonlight. The two are from the projects of Miami, and they grew up blocks from each other, though they never knew each other. Last week, I wrote the following about Moonlight. Identity is perhaps the most elusive of human concepts. Are we the conglomeration of our life experiences, the deterministic products of our genes, or some unquantifiable mixture of both? And what of the stories we tell ourselves, and the stories we tell other people? In this case, the identity in question is Chiron, whom we meet in three stages of life, as a boy, a teenager, and adult. He grapples with his homosexuality in a very hostile environment that shapes who we witness him become. And the film's style is pretty incredible. It can only be described as lyrical realism because it's the stuff of memory, so it has that realistic quality, but at the same time, it also has that very cinematic and, you know, enhanced, embellished quality that memories tend to have, like a, a, a sort of glow or a sweeping camera. Yeah, we often talk about the underrepresentation of various voices in and out of Hollywood, and this is uh, a film featuring an entirely African-American cast. It's gorgeously acted, and I think you know there are certain films that you just go see because they're going to become part of the canon of independent cinema, and I strongly suspect this is one of those films and think it's it's worth seeing by the way Emily and I saw it together it's worth seeing just to um have it in your sort of personal library of those films everybody talks about an event we are very excited about uh, is finally finally happening the Alamo Draft House in Brooklyn is opening on October 28th and uh, we've been talking about this cinema for a while here on the show. It's just uh, one of the coolest cinemas in the country, originally based in Austin. Now it's going to be here. They have this amazing programming lineup for for film lovers of all types. And we actually had one of the programmers of the Alamo Draft House in Brooklyn on the podcast uh, for one of the interview shows a while back. So we'll link to that in this week's podcast post. And speaking of our interview podcasts, don't forget to tune in on Monday as John's interview that he mentioned with a couple of the Black Mirror directors will be live. And of course, you can catch Indie Film Weekly every single Thursday morning. So that being said, thank you so much for joining us for this week's show. You can get links to all the opportunities and films we discussed on this week's show at this week's podcast post on nofilmschool.com, along with lots of other information about the craft of filmmaking. 
If you love the show, which of course you do, please subscribe and rate us with five whole stars on iTunes. And as always, stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. I'm at E.L. Booter on Twitter. I'm at Charles Hayne on Twitter. And John is at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim, John, Jim, 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 J